song and for leading us in worship, and Noel and Miss Glenda for leading as well. And uh, as we begin today, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 139, or Psalm 139, however you want to say it. So if you want to go ahead and be turning there, you can. Uh, But we're picking back up in our study of the doctrine of worship and looking at uh, why it is that we worship. And so we're going to be seeking to give another reason or another answer to that as we get into Psalm 139 today. But before we do any of that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we know that you are a purposeful God, that you are a sovereign God who is in complete control over everything and that there is not one aspect of this world that you do not lay claim to. There is not one area of our lives that you have not claimed to be in control of. And so, Lord, we come knowing that you have a purpose, even as we meet here today uh, in Uh, Georgiana, Alabama, in uh, a beautiful spring day, you have orchestrated everything so that we might do that. And so, Lord, we come knowing that you have something for us, knowing that your purpose is for us to hear from your word, and we come ready to do that today. So I I pray, Father, that you would work through me to preach the words that you would have me to preach and to take away those words that would distract or lead astray. And Lord, that through the ministry of the word that you would draw your people near and that if there's anyone here today who has not trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you through the words that are preached would bring them to faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that all things would be done for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So last week we started to answer the question of why it is that we worship God and we saw that The creation demands the worship of God. We saw that God has created this world in such a way that every aspect of creation demands that we worship God. And not only that, but that we are designed to worship God. God has made us for His glory and He's made us to worship Him. But and now most of us, when we when we answer the question of why it is that we should worship God, typically the first reaction, the first reaction I have to that question is to give the answer of creation. But most of the time we stop there. We say, well, you know, the creation calls us to worship. If you just look at the beautiful night sky or you look at a beautiful mountain range, you can't help but worship God. And we tend to just stop there. But actually, Scripture gives us a number of other reasons that we should worship God. And we're going to look at a second reason besides creation that we should worship God today. And that reason is that God is in control of all things. God is completely in control of everything that is and was and is is to come in this world. So simply put, God is in complete control of everything that He has created. This is what theologians call the doctrine of God's sovereignty. We don't use the word sovereignty that much anymore other than maybe when we talk about a king or a queen and that's how the word is meant is to say that God is like a king that reigns over the world. But uh, theologians use the term of God's sovereignty to talk about the fact 
that God is in control. So Abraham Kuyper, who is a famous theologian from the 20th century, said there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Or as R.C. Sproul put it, and I like how he put it, he says, if there is one maverick molecule in all of the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, he is not God. To see this from Scripture, let's consider Psalm 139 together. So what I'd like to do is read this whole psalm, and we're going to look at the first 16 verses and consider three points that I want you to see from the, the text today that I'll point out after we read together. So let's read together Psalm 139. We'll read the whole thing, and then I'll, I'll give you these, these three points. Psalm 139, God's Word says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intrinsically, uh, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. 
So this psalm is a beautiful psalm about God's sovereignty, his complete control over this world. And there are three points that I want you to see from the text today. The first is the intimate knowledge of God. Second, the immediate presence of God. And third, the immense power of God. The intimate knowledge of God, the immediate presence of God, and the immense power of God. So first, in verses 1 through 6 of this psalm, we find the intimate knowledge of God. In short, what the psalmist says is that God knows everything. The concept, this concept is what scholars call omniscience. So this is a big word, but if you break it down, omni means all and science means knowledge. And so when a scholar says omniscience, they mean that God knows everything. He is all-knowing. Or to state it negatively, because sometimes it's harder to understand it unless we state something negatively, there is nothing, this is the wrong grammar, but I apologize. There is nothing that God doesn't know. He is not ignorant of anything. There has never been a time in the eternal life of God where he has learned anything. There has never been a time where God has been caught by surprise. Now, you might be thinking, and some of you, as I'm saying that, might be thinking, well, of course, you know, I've read the prophets and I know that God is able to look down through the corridors of time and and see what's going to happen. And he knows what's going to happen before it happens. But that's not actually what the Bible means when it talks about the knowledge of God. Understand that there's a difference between foresight and foreknowledge. What we typically think of when we talk about God's knowing all things is we think of it like a, like a soothsayer or like a, 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 a seer of sorts that he sees things before they happen. But that's not what the Bible means. The Bible means God knows it. And the reason that's different shows up right here in Psalm 139. Notice in verse 1, David says that the Lord has known me in the perfect tense. God has always known me. And not only that, but he starts to list out all these things that God already knows about David. He knows his every move when he lies down and when he rises up. He knows his thoughts. He knows his habits and his ways. And it says he even knows my words before they are in my mouth. He knows what I'm going to say before I say them. Now, the Hebrew word that is used for know in all of these verses is yada. And yada, if you, you know, sometimes if you want to know what a word means, you can look at the way it's used all over the place, right? You can go and look at the way The word yada is used all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. And you can find out what God means when he uses that word. Well, if you look at the word yada when it's used in the Bible, it's never used to talk about God seeing something before it happens. So if you 
Look at the first three instances of the word yada being used in the Bible. It's used in Genesis chapter 3 when God commands Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of what? The knowledge of good and evil, right? That's the word yada. And he says, because on that day, actually this is Satan talking, he says, God knows that on that day you will know things like he knows them. And that word know there is the same word used here to talk about God knowing everything. It's also used a little bit later in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says they ate and their eyes had become opened and they knew that they were naked. Okay. Now, do you foresee that somebody's naked? No, you know they're naked. Okay. And not only that, but a little later in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. Now, I don't want to explain what that no means, but, but the idea is that Adam knew his wife intimately. He knew everything about her. And so when we read that God knows us, the idea is that he knows us intimately. He knows everything about us. There is not a single thing in our lives that is not hidden from God. Now, this intimate knowledge of God demands our worship. To the unbeliever, the fact that God knows us intimately should be a fearful thing. It should be a fearful thing because 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The unbeliever might think that they, are, they have everyone fooled. That they can put on a good face and a good suit and they can go to church and play the game and everyone is fooled. But God knows. God knows who you are in your heart of hearts because he knows your words before you ever speak them. He knows your thoughts before you ever think them. He knows the words that you really meant to say, the words that you wanted to say when you wanted to just let loose on that guy. And tell him what he really is. Or you wanted to just blow up that Facebook post with exactly what you think of that person. Even though you didn't even say it or you didn't even post it, God still knows what you wanted to say. Right. He still knows everything about you. Now, for the believer, though, the intimate knowledge of God is a great comfort see, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 through 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Yes, the fact that God knows all things does mean that He knows your sins. He knows your secret sins. But if you're in Christ, it also means that He knows your every need, even before you ask. He knows you so well 
that he knows every last hair on your head, which is more challenging for some people than for others to know that much about someone. The second aspect of God's sovereignty that I want you to notice is the immediate presence of God. In verses 7 through 12, we find that God is all present, or as the scholars call it, omnipresence. David uses these two broad contrasts as he communicates just how far God's presence goes. He uses a contrast in the spiritual realm and he uses a contrast in the physical realm. And he says, if I go to the highest heavens, if I go to the throne room of heaven, you're there. But if I go down to Sheol, which is the Hebrew version of hell, even if I go to the depths of hell, you're still there. Now, this is a side note. You don't have to pay me for this. But uh, just as a side note, the way we often talk about hell is a little misleading because nowadays we talk about hell as being separation from God. Now, in a way that's true. We're separated from the goodness of God. But the Bible right here says that God is present even in hell. Amen. God is present everywhere. There is nowhere that God is not. Right. And then the other contrast that, that uh, David gives us is in the earthly realm. He says that if I get on the wings of the wind and I go as high in the sky as I can, you're up there too. And if I go in the depths of the ocean, you're there. God is present in the spiritual world as far as that reaches and in the physical world as far as that reaches. And again, for the unbeliever, the idea of immediate, the immediate presence of God is a terror because it means that there is nowhere you can go to escape the wrath of God. He knows your every thought and you can't escape his judgment. But for the believer, this too is a great comfort. And in verses 11 and 12, David gives us a beautiful reason why this is a comfort to the believer. He says that even when I would despair because of the overwhelming night, even in that darkness, even when it seems there's no way that any light could penetrate that darkness. I don't know if y'all have ever seen a night that dark, but I've, I, used, I grew up hunting in Garland, Alabama, where it's all swamp. And you get down in those swamps and you think there ain't never, no way I'm ever going to see light again. But when God, even in the darkness of the darkest night, even when it seems like everything would overshadow the light of God, yet God is still present there. Even if we go through the struggle of cancer, God is still there. Even if we face persecution because of our faith in Christ, God is still there. Even if we lose everything we own in bankruptcy or a fire or just the, the way life goes in a pandemic, even if we lose everything we own or everything we love, God is still there. And the third aspect of God's sovereignty is His immense power. 
In verses 13 through 16, he gives this beautiful depiction of the intimate way that God forms every human being in his mother's womb. If you've ever been through the process of uh, having a child, you know what David is driving at here. From conception to birth, the formation of a new life is a wonder to consider. I remember with each of, my chi- each of my children feeling completely helpless as to what I could do. Because as a parent, there's not really anything you can do in the process of pregnancy and birth. Sure, the mother should take vitamins and eat well and all of that, but even the mother can't control the development of that little baby inside of her. And yet... Week after week, month after month, that baby grows. The heart beats, the blood vessels form, the fingers and toes stretch out until finally, when the time is right, a brand new independent life is born into the world. And God is involved in every step that brings that life to be. God is powerful enough to make every human life that has ever existed. He's powerful enough to make the universe with all of its immense glory. He's powerful enough to sustain that bright burning sun and to cause the life that we know on this wonderful planet to flourish. God is all powerful or omnipotent. For the unbeliever, this should just add to his terror because not only... Does God know your sins? And not only can He find you wherever you hide because He is present everywhere, but He is all-powerful and able to consume you in one dreadful act of judgment. And yet, for the believer, God's omnipotence is a great comfort because the God who is the all-powerful judge is also the God who is the all-powerful Savior. This immense power of God is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And if He's able to do that, then guess what? He's able to raise you from the dead too. There's one last unifying aspect of God's sovereignty that I want you to notice. Notice in verses 5 and in 16... David makes a particular point about God's control over his own life. In verse 5, he says that God hems him in. And then in verse 16, he says, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Understand from this that God's sovereignty is purposeful. God rules through His knowledge, through His presence, through His power. He rules over everything. So, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, I I want you to think about that. We call rolling dice a game of what? chance, right? That there is nothing we can figure more random 
than rolling dice and waiting on the outcome. The reason we flip a coin at the beginning of a football game is we figure that's the fairest way because it's a, it's a game of chance. It, it, chances, it could fall for the, the a home team or it could fall for the visiting team. But what the proverb says here is that with every roll of the dice, with every casting of the lot, with every flip of the coin, even though we think it's the most random thing that we can do, the decision of every roll is from God. God is in control even of the most random thing that we can think of. And not only that, now we might think, well, sure, sure, God's in control of the physical world. Yes, I believe He's fully in control of dice and mice and moose and all the the things that are in this world. But is He really in control of my life? Is He really in control of the human realm? Well, consider what Proverbs 16.9 says. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Even the plans of men are under the sovereignty of God. Remember how terribly the brothers of Joseph treated him. They plotted and planned and they sold him into slavery and they lied to their father so that he could suffer for decades. But when Joseph was finally reconciled to his brothers and they pled for mercy, Joseph answered in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I was reminded just this week in a fresh new way of just how applicable this truth is because we tend to think that other things in our lives have control more than we think that God has control. So I, I've, I saw this quote that's been floating around on social media, particularly since the election, that is attributed to Billy Sunday, and I, it, it struck me wrongly when I read it, and I thought, well, that'll go nicely in my sermon. So I thought I would, I would read it to you, and you just pay attention to what you might think might be a problem based on what I just said, and I'll, I'll explain what I see with this that's a problem. The quote that's attributed to Billy Sunday, even though I can't, I can't verify that it actually is, because, you know, not everything on Facebook is true, um, the, the, the quote goes like this. You cannot pray thy kingdom come and then rush to the polls and vote for the thing that is preventing the kingdom from coming. Now, there are a number of things that are wrong with that statement, but I don't have time to get into all of it. But there's one part that I want to point out. If God is sovereign, then there is no way to prevent his kingdom from coming. It concerns me that so many people think that this statement is right because it betrays the fact that we think the polls can control God. I mean, do we honestly think and believe that God is up in heaven just wringing his hands, waiting and hoping that we will vote the right way in the next election? Do we honestly think that Joe Biden is now thwarting the purposes of God and that with the stroke of his pen by his feeble hand, he is preventing God from accomplishing his will? If God is truly sovereign, then we must say with all of our might, 
Absolutely not. King Herod, one of the most unstable, nuttiest kings who has ever lived, could not snuff out the life of the infant Jesus. The best educated, most politically connected religious leaders had their hypocrisy laid bare by Jesus with just simple answers to their questions. And they were dumbfounded by the way that he answered their their questions, trying to trip him up. And the most powerful empire to ever rule the earth could nail him to their favorite instrument of torture, but they could not keep him in the grave. If all of these powers could not defeat the risen Son of God, why do we think that our modern political leaders can't? God is completely sovereign. And His kingdom has come, and it will come in its fullness on the day that He has set. And he will do this regardless of how Americans vote. Now, friend, God's control over all things demands your worship. You may think nobody can truly know you. Nobody can judge you. Nobody can control you. But you're wrong. God knows exactly who you are. And you will be completely helpless to escape His judgment on the last day. But the God who knows your sin is also the God who loves you. And He is also the God who has given His Son to pay the full penalty for your sin, even as He knows you and knows the sins that you have committed. He, in His love for you, gave His Son, and His Son went willingly to the cross so that you might have eternal life. Won't you trust in Jesus today? Brothers and sisters, God's sovereignty means that He knows our every need before we ask. It means that He is with us even as we face trials of many kinds. And it means that He has conquered the greatest enemy we can face. And that is death itself. This should call us to worship Him alone. But so often, instead of worshiping God and acknowledging that He's in full control, we choose instead to give control to political leaders or to money or to power or to career or to something else that we think can bring more immediate control in our lives. But those are all feeble gods who will ultimately be judged by the one true, all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful God. May we devote our lives day in and day out to worshiping this one true sovereign God and worshiping Him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are indeed the sovereign God of all creation. Lord, you have purposed our lives for your glory and you have uh, given us hope through your son that you are able and powerful enough to even cause the dead to be raised. Father, may we trust in you and you alone as the one true God who has full control over our lives. May we not trust in 
political processes or powers or, or our own uh, ability to manipulate our own lives to have full control over it. But rather, may we ultimately trust in your full control and power over our lives. Father, as we go from this place, may we not live timidly thinking that if, if we speak too loudly about Jesus or we, uh, or we stand too firmly on our faith, that uh, some, someone with power or control will cause harm to us. May we instead be willing to even face persecution and even face difficulty for the sake of the gospel because we know that ultimately God is in control. Father, bless us as we end this worship service and as we go from this place. May we go glorifying you and you alone. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.